HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Franco Lania's Minnesota Wild Rice Griddle Cakes. For more information, visit francolania.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store located at 100 Frost Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at feast.yr.ears. Today is episode 20. I've made it through hosting this show now 20 times, or not quite made it. I've made it through 19. Today's 20. Uh, joining me in the studio today is Christopher Nicholson. Uh, Christopher, I would describe as the wine magician at the Red Hook Winery, uh, and he's a salmon whisperer uh, behind Iliamna Salmon, uh, which comes from Bristol Bay in Alaska, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Thanks, Christopher, for joining me in the studio today. Oh, thanks for having me, Harry. So, Christopher... You are a man of many, many talents, um, and I know about probably only some of them. Um, when you meet someone and invariably they say, oh, what do you do? Uh, what do you say? Wow. I tell people that uh, I work as a winemaker, uh, but that my family business is commercial fishing. Do you, uh, do you think you are the only winemaker who's also a commercial fisherman in the United States? Man, I I don't know the answer to that, but I think maybe, I can't think of his family name right now, a guy named Gary who has a, a winery in Oregon called Coho. I feel like his family has some commercial salmon fishing background. Oh, interesting. Maybe so the maybe there's Northwest. more than one yeah. of you. Yeah, but I, I don't remember the exact story. I know he, he likes uh, salmon, and I like him, and he makes good wine, too. So. Cool. Uh, so you are the winemaker at the Red Hook Winery in yep. Red Hook, Brooklyn. I'm one of three there. One three of three. Winemakers. Um, and how how did you find your way into winemaking? I mean, Red Hook is certainly not historically a winemaking region, right? Yes. So can you tell me a little bit about the how the Red Hook Winery came to be and your place in it? Yes. Um, it'll conflate a little bit with um, some fishing um, 
um, stories. But so I've grown up uh, commercial fishing in Bristol Bay, Alaska, since I was a child. It's my um, mother's family's business. My neighbors growing up um, fishing during the summers were uh, Sicilians who lived in the Bay Area, and they were olive oil importers. Um, that was one of their many business, dredging, fishing, olive oil <laughs> importers. Thing. You, you'll name it, we do it, you know. Yeah. Um, but I got interested in olives from chatting with them uh, during high school and uh, started chasing them a little bit in college. When I say chasing olives, just uh, trying to read about uh, um, olive growing and then eventually visiting um, some regions, just visiting olive growers. And <clears throat> in the midst of doing that, I uh, stumbled into grapes. And I think my first um, harvest was 1999, um, working with uh, uh, Willing Workers and Organic Farms. Uh, it's uh, a great little um, communist enclave outside of Siena. Spent mm. a, a harvest there. Now, these were neighbors that were into olives in Montana, just to in, bring the full country thanks for, together. Thanks uh, for, yeah, a little... Because uh, you grew up in Montana, Yeah, right? grew up in winters in Montana, summers in Alaska. Ah. So, so this was during the summers um, that I was with the Italian olive oil importers, um, but, uh, so that I got to know them yeah, over, the, over the summertime, too. Wow, so you, so you spent your time growing up in areas that were really, really not populated by humans. Yes. Right? Really and now you remote. live in New York City, which is so severely populated. Oh, I love your town. What a great town. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. I, like, I love the West, though, too. I, I sure. Know, uh, I love every opportunity to, to spend time out there. So. And do your folks still live out West? Yep. My, my mom and dad uh, still live in Montana. Yep. So your so your sons get some time out there in the yeah well, big sky country as it in fact is having having driven through Montana, um, I was really amazed. I mean, you know, I, I spent a lot of time. I've spent a lot of time driving cross country. I've been to so beautiful. Been to forty seven. Let's see, no, forty six of the of the lower forty eight. Um, I'm jealous. And you know, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the back of a car as a kid, looking at license plates and all the Montana once a big sky country. And I thought, ah, it, the sky is the sky, right? Everywhere you go, and that is really not true. When you cross that border, driving into Montana, it is like the sky opens up, and it's. I don't know what it is about it. I don't know if it is the latitude or if it is the lack of you know light pollutant or what but i mean i i once slept outside uh in a field in montana and i swear i've never seen so many stars in my life beautiful oh so beautiful i wish i could quote um that beautiful passage in travels with charlie where steinbeck talks about his love affair with montana he's he 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 says what i want to say about uh, how much i love the place right so good um so winters, winters, and, and school, I assume, in Montana. Right? Yes, sir. and then um, moving, moving to Alaska um, for the summer. Now, what I mean, so when, so since you were a kid, you've spent pretty much every summer yep. in Alaska. Yep, and that's the when I was a real little guy, uh, my parents didn't take me up there. Um, you're being patient to hear me talk about my family. I guess that's part of what, why we're talking. But sure. So my my mom is half uh, Native Alaskan. She's a um, there are two major native groups in Alaska, and she's what Alaskans would call um, everything so perfectly, you know, precise and ethnically respectful. They're what um, um, Alaskans would call an Indian, um, which they would say in contrast to an Eskimo or an Inuit. Ah. So her family's Athabascan. She's half. Um, and she, her family's been fishing in this uh, region in Bristol Bay for just hundreds of years. Um, 
my my dad is a, an Aussie uh, fella, and he and my mom they're going to school in Canada, and they brought us to Montana and raised us there. So I gave you a lot of context about the summers. Um, my parents, my mother, brought my dad into the fishing business, and uh, they would spend the summers fishing, and my grandma would watch us in Montana while they were there. And then I think the first summer I went up, I was six, five or six for the summer and I took a few summers off and then um, I started working as a not with my parents as a f- full-time summer fisherman when I was 13 so I fished every summer um, in Bristol Bay um, on graveyard points since 1988 wow and that uh, that particular fishing area fishing ground that is a a family I mean you my, my understanding is that you do need to be Native Alaskan, right? To have those fishing rights, is that true? Or you know, it's um, it's not exactly uh, that there, but it's um, while trying to be too convoluted, the management of um, the wild um, sockeye salmon fishery in Bristol Bay has um, been through a couple of different iterations. It's you know the world's largest sustainable salmon fishery. They're doing something amazingly right there. Sure, but there's been different ways they've managed it. In 1973, the state of Alaska decided to establish the fishery as what they described as a limited entry um, permit system. And people like my family who had history there were given um, rights to fish based on the proof of their time there. But it, you didn't exclusively have to be an indigenous uh, Alaskan to do it. It was a kind of a history of fishing there. And the people they gave the permits to had been paying leases or buying licenses from the state for, you know, some period of time, which obviously wasn't, you know, eternal, but some period of time they said, oh, like, you were, you were part of this group here. And they made the number of permits they issued in 1973, they matched basically the number of fishing folk who were mm-hmm. there. So it wasn't like, there's 3,000 people here and we're going to send out 1,000 permits. They... Right kind of set it all the way across so everybody can fish who had been and do you have um I, I as i understand it there are sort of two forms of fishing for salmon yep, yep. um in i guess in bristol bay there right. there are two two styles um they're both uh gill nets we both run the um, little gill nets the kind of fishing that i do is out of a very tiny boat like a 20 foot boat and we don't have any machinery you just cast the nets out by hand and drag them in by hand and you know um, the other style of fishing is called uh, drifting, and not that those are big mechanical boats. They're only they're only allowed to be 32 feet long, so they're 12 feet longer than my boats. They are allowed to use um, a bit more gear. Um, I use 300 feet of gear. They're allowed to use 900 feet of gear. In both cases, the gear is only 12 feet deep. Um, the kind of fishing that I do by law, my nets have to be anchored. And the kind of fishing, that the other kind that's allowed in Bristol Bay, by law, the nets must never be anchored. They have to drift only. So it's just um, <clears throat> those uh, two different uh, styles there. Sure. Um, do you know Do you know offhand, I, I didn't have a chance, I didn't look mm-hmm. it up, how big is Bristol Bay as an area? Man, that, that's a great question. I, I don't know the square uh, mileage of the fishery. I know the way it's broken down. I think at the widest point where fishing is allowed, there's kind of boundary markers that are set in Bristol Bay. I think at the widest point, it's not more than, uh, I'm going to say between 150 miles. Sorry, 100 uh, miles and 50 miles, maybe. 
but it's you know it's a very where the fishing is kind of focused the fishing effort is really in the crook of the bay where it's the narrowest uh, across but it kind of dots um, the bay based in different zones that the Department of Fishing Game has, has laid out and they've laid them out in such a way that they have the ability to manage them you know so. sure so uh, just I uh, you know since we do have the power of the internet mm. I'm just looking it up here and information and, and in its in its the way that it is um, looked at on the map I see what you mean from the map of the, the little crook there it says that the bay itself what's considered the bay is 250 miles long and 180 miles wide so uh, yeah. just for context to understand you know how yeah. much bigger sort of everything is in Alaska compared yeah. to here from my house in Brooklyn to my in-laws house in Providence, Rhode Island is 180 miles. Whoa. So that's the short distance Whoa. of Bristol Bay. So, Yank. I mean, you know, you could probably, I would imagine then we could fit sort of from New York city kind of to Boston to Albany <laughs> kind of Connecticut, Massachusetts and Rhode Island all in Bristol Bay, just to give us a sense super. of how big an area we're, we're talking about oh, here. Super. That's wonderful. Um, and so you guys are there for how long in the summer? What's what's the season? We usually head up there around uh, mid-early June, and we're there through the third or third and a half week of July. So it's about six weeks. And uh, how, I mean, how does one get there? It's fairly remote. Yep, it's pretty remote. Um, from New York, uh, here you would uh, uh, fly from here to Anchorage, you know, by way of Chicago or Seattle. Um, and then from Anchorage, you would take a, a smaller uh, uh, plane. There actually is a, a jet landing strip at the head of the bay in a little town called King Salmon. So um, you'd Fitting fly name. from... Yeah, great name, King Salmon. You'd fly from New York to uh, Anchorage, and then Anchorage to King Salmon is about 300 miles. Um, and that's a, like a 45-minute flight. And you would be... Uh, you'd get... Uh, you'd land in a town called King Salmon, and King Salmon's off the road system. I mean, there's a little road that runs from King Salmon to Naknek, which is the town that's right on the bay, and that's about uh, 20 miles. There is a road between those two towns, but other than that, there's no access except by boat or air to get there. You can't drive there, I guess is what I'm trying right. to say. You could, you could uh, right. um, fly or, or take a boat there. And then so, sorry, I'm um, saying this a little bit convolutedly. New York to Anchorage, um, Anchorage to King Salmon, um, and then 20 miles by uh, car, or you could take the boat down the river um, from King Salmon to Naknek. And then from there, it's 20 miles across the bay by boat or uh, airplane to the to our camp, uh, really poetically called uh, Graveyard Point. That's that's where we lived during the summers is Graveyard Point. And how much how much sort of gear and supplies do you have to then bring with you? I mean, either I mean, obviously Anchorage things are available, and I yep. assume the further you go, you have less access. Yeah, right? yeah, really, that's true. So we we um, boat in or fly in uh, mostly boat though all of our supplies. And when I say boat, uh, I should give a little bit of context there. Um, there's a barge service from Seattle, Washington to um, Anchorage and then from Anchorage to um, Naknek, to the, that little port down there. So it's the most cost-effective way. Um, so we you know, put a lot of dry goods and... And that's just uh, like loading a pallet the way you would ship something on a truck? Exactly, yep. We, we have a, you know, one of the, these tiny little shipping containers um, and we you know, pack it full of flour and beans and you know, all, all kinds of dry goods and 
motor oil and wine. Do you, br- do, you bring, do you bring wine? <laughs> That's funny. Actually, I don't. Yeah. I, I never bring wine. Yeah, and not because I'm a, a, a opposed to it, but I just I'm always oh, I'm sure it's going to break. So right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I guess the the transit is a little rough on the container. Yeah. The the it's mostly um, you know little plastic 750s of you know great. Great quality whiskey. Sure. Really sure. Have nothing but the best. Keep, you, keep you warm in the morning. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Really, really good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to take, uh, take a short break and hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, uh, we'll we hear a little more about salmon and then move on to, move on to wine. Super. Thanks, Harry. In October of 2013, Chef Franco Lania happily found himself in Marshall, Minnesota. Showing true Minnesota hospitality, Franco's hosts invited him to an afternoon of Midwest fun. They visited, among other things, a nearby bison farm and even a local shooting club. The only stipulation was that the men wanted a meal prepared by this master chef at the club's lodge. Franco worked his magic in the kitchen using locally available pumpkins, squashes, kale, bison steaks, and Minnesota wild rice. As a classically trained chef, Franco often made a risotto rice pancake. Franco substituted wild rice for the risotto and added some secret ingredients to his new recipe. Voila! Chef Franco's Minnesota wild rice griddle cakes were born. Now you too can enjoy these delicious griddle cakes and all the healthful benefits of wild rice. Purchase your very own box and help support a very time-honored American product, wild rice from Minnesota. For more information, visit francolania.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. I've been speaking with Christopher Nicholson about salmon fishing in Alaska. Uh, We'll get to some wine uh, shortly. Um, So to continue talking about the the salmon, um, you catch sockeye there in Bristol Bay? Yep. Um, And, you know, salmon, um, for those of you who are listening who, you know, I, I always find salmon to be so fascinating as an animal. Right. I mean, so I mysterious. the the fact that by and large they return to exactly the same place, not just the same zip code, not just the same state, the same literal physical like, you know, GPS mapped like location so on Earth to lay their eggs where they were born is Un, I mean, it's just like, it's so hard to imagine. I mean, it would be, you know, could you imagine if people did that, right? If, if people went to have their babies at exactly the place where they were born? I mean, imagine, you know, we'd all crash into each other and it would be like, it'd just be, you know, <laughs> be insanity. Um, and so, you know, the and, and just the unlikelihood, right? They go and they lay thousands of eggs and four of those maybe make it to be adult salmon. I mean, yeah. it's just, you know, it's... It is a, it's mind-boggling, and it's you know there are lots of fisheries where they've been overfished. 
because, you know, I mean, it's, you know, to, to use the, uh, to use the adage, you know, shooting fish in a barrel, it's sort of like that, right? I mean, they're all coming upstream. They're yeah. all moving kind of slow because they're going against the water coming downstream. And yeah. they're fairly easy to catch um, in, in that way. But, yes. you know, where Christopher and his family fish is still sustainable um, in, and, and is being maintained that way. So I think that's it's super important to, uh, to think about that. Um, so you're headed back this summer, like every summer, and you have two sons, yes, uh, William and Ezra. Yep, yep, seven and nine. And uh, have they ever been to Alaska uh, for the fishing? My incredibly uh, powerful and patient bride, Emily, um, brought up the, the nine-year-old boy when he was eight days old and wow. spent the summer in the bush with him. And then she brought up the boy is now seven when he was uh, five weeks old. And spent the summer in the bush with him. So they've they've been up a couple summers, not yet fishing, just as um, you know, living in a fish box, with their little bed, and being in the bush with Emily. But it's our our hope this summer that Emily and I can bring the the guys up. We're still trying to see if we can uh, juggle the budget to uh, pay for all of us to fly up there, then right. boat all the supplies in, and set up cook shack and. <laughs> stuff for them but we're, we're excited to get them up there soon so. and the uh the fishing is a is a family business right you operate with cousins as well yep cousins aunts uncles we all um fish together we have a little um a uh, little rustic uh camp uh that we um set up i mean there are these decaying old buildings that we uh that we live in but about 20 25 of us cousins brothers aunts uncles everybody so that's uh yeah. that's neat it's uh, i mean it, you know it it clearly is a lot of work um, and you know, for obvious reason, I mean, it's a very short season. Um, but it sounds like it's a, it's a neat experience and to be able to share that with your sons. Yeah, would we be love incredible. it. Incredible. We love it. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about, um, we've, we've covered sort of your, what happens for the humans mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. this, in this event. Um, can you cover a little bit about what happens to the fish? So the fish ends up in your gillnet and can you talk me through sort of like how that fish would make it like to me as yeah. a consumer? Yeah, super. So, um, as you mentioned, we're catching um, sockeye salmon. That's one of the five species of Pacific salmon. Sockeye are the ones that have that really um, super crimson, scarlet-colored uh, flesh. Um, and their skin, their exterior, actually turns that crazy crimson scarlet when at the end of their um, kind of uh, spawning cycle. But when I catch them, they're still, you know, silver exteriors, um, silver blue exteriors, but very brilliant uh, red interiors, just giving a sense of what the fish is like. Um, so we're landing the fish um, in these shallow gill nets that we you know, put out by hand and uh, drag in by hand. Our boats are very shallow, too. Like you, When you're standing in the boat, the gunwale of the boat, um, that's a side for all of us landlubbers, um, the, the gunwale only comes up to about my waist. They're, it's a shallow boat. And how um, big are the fish? I mean, just to give a sense of, like, yeah, what do they weigh, the fish? Yeah, the in? average weight of sockeye in Bristol Bay is 6 pounds, um, probably, you know, from tail to nose, 20 inches, 21 inches. Um, they're a little small, that much you fillet them down. And they're, you know, whopper fish that are 12 to 14 pounds and little tiny squirts that are, you know, just less than a pound. But the average weight is 6 pounds. Um, so we're uh, catching the fish in these uh, shallow nets, we um, pull the nets into the boat and um, pick the fish out of the net. And on board, we have um, these uh, kind of uh, bags, I guess is the best way to describe them, that we're um, holding the, the fish in. 
and in slush ice. Um, so we uh, bring the fish in. Um, this is a bit violent. Pluck its gills so it's uh, blab while it's alive, and then plunge it into uh, slush ice. Or sometimes, if volume is high, we'll simply pick it into the bag, and immediately, within so no more than two hours, offload it to a larger boat that we keep um, anchored up that has a refrigerated seawater hold. So the water temperature we're catching them in is average of 55 degrees, and then we're putting them in a um, refrigerated seawater uh, hold, uh, RSW hold, at 30 degrees. Then we transfer them from there into town, which is 20 miles away, and then um, cut them on shore. And then if we're sending them out fresh, uh, we'll um, uh, run like Billy O to get them on to the courier flight to make it in Anchorage by 11 a.m. for FedEx hmm. for delivery in New York next morning. That's for the just couple of five weeks of fresh fish we do. Um, if we're not going to do them fresh, if we're not going to sell them fresh, then we run them into town um, in the same uh, way. And then we we immediately fillet them when we bring them to shore, um, vacuum seal them, and bring them to minus uh, 40 um, so we can, um, you have to handle the fish really well, but when we bring them to minus 40, we can sell them as uh, sashimi. So, Yeah, and they're, they're delicious. Um, I, w- I would say it's the best salmon that I've ever, ever eaten. Oh. Um, and, you know, due in, in large part to the, um, the fish themselves, but also yeah. in large part to the handling. Um, you guys yeah. do a great job of making sure that it's well handled from, oh. uh, from catch to, uh, to consumer. And, uh, there's a uh, there's a website where people can find out more about the Iliamna Fish Company. Sure, yeah, yeah. it's uh, just redsalmon.com. That's it. Yeah. Um, and uh, Christopher and Emily run. I don't know if, if I should say this. I mean, I, I hope there are still spots left for people, but they run a, a sort of a, a salmon CSA, if you will, um, where you can sign up now, and then you can reap the benefits of their hard work in uh, in June and July, and uh, both of them and their family and William and Ezra's hard work to, to bring that salmon here to New York when uh, in, in the fall, when the frozen fillets finally make it all the way to New York from Yay. from Alaska. To Yay. Quite a, uh, quite, quite a trip. Well, we... Uh, we have a few minutes left, and I, I do want to touch on wine. I mean, you know, we could, we could get carried away and keep talking and talking about salmon. I find yes, that, that piece of it endlessly fascinating. I also love wine. So I definitely want to touch on wine and, and the Red Hook Winery and um, what, what kind of wines you make and sort of yeah. how that works. I mean, obviously, you know, unlike a, I guess, what I would call a more traditional winery. Yeah, like an estate winery. Like an yeah. estate winery yeah. in, in France or Italy or Greece or California where the grapes are grown and then – picked out of the field and moved into a building on the property and crushed and, and made into wine, um, your operation is obviously a little bit different than that. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'll give a quick snapshot out of it. Um, <clears throat> the winery itself is located in the Red Hook neighborhood of Brooklyn. Um, the idea behind starting the winery was to draw attention to New York State viticulture um, and in particular the you know efforts of individual farmers and the kind of identity of individual sites on the North Fork of Long Island, which is our local growing region. We're on the same earth that we're digging shovelfuls of in Red Hook is the same earth that's being turned over in um, on the North Fork. Um, so the focus of the miner, though, is New York State viticulture and these individual farmers and sites. Um, um, so far, we started in 2008, We've mostly focused on the North Fork. We've branched out a little bit to um, five sites in the Finger Lakes. 
and we're interested also the Hudson River Valley um, mm-hmm. also. And just the overall hope is to uh, help um, New York, the town, the city, get a better sense of what wine and what wine from here tastes like and what makes it um, unique to New York, like what, why it's not like the Loire or um, Napa or Spain or any one of those wonderful other places, but just why, it, why it's like itself and how that is. And how would how would you describe that? I mean, what what makes New York wine yeah, unique? The, yeah, there's a. I I think I'll maybe I'll pick the North Fork to talk about um, the the thing that seems to define the North Fork um, above all other things is the sea and the the wines that are grown in the North Fork. They're they're just dominated by the ocean in every sense, and the way that that kind of feels or tastes in the wine. You know, sometimes comes out as um, a saline or kind of savory um, uh, character to the wines. There's um, the smells of them sometimes to me are kind of uh, maritime or uh, saline. Um, the land, the the North Fork of Long Island is a glacial moraine, it's a deposit. Um, the composition of the soil is sandy loam, um, which is uh, just you know it's very good drainage in the North Fork. Um, I, I think that the region, so I said there's kind of a maritime characteristic. I feel like that's something that defines the North Fork. It's so young. I mean, the North Fork was only planted with um, Vitis vinifera, with European varietals, in 1973. Um, Louisa and John Hargrave planted um, there in the early 70s, so it's only 42 years old this year, and I think that's um, one of the things that makes viticulture and enology, the $10 word for winemaking, um, interesting is the relationship between, you know, a piece of land, um, the meteorology of a particular vintage, you know, what the weather's like, and then the activities of humans based on those two things, you know, the immovable soil, the utterly movable weather, and, you know, a, a willing human and that human's, you know, interest in interacting with those things. Yeah. It's a... Uh I've had a couple of the wines from Red Hook. I mean, I don't, how many wines do you have in production at any given time? There's quite a few because because it's it, um, my friend Mark Snyder who owns the winery, and it was his uh, brainchild. He's the one who brought together us three winemakers. The other two winemakers are Robert Foley and uh, Abe Schoener. Um, that, but he's Mark says it's kind of marketing suicide. But we have I think 130 different wines in bottle right now, and. That's a kind of a weird way to say it, but when I say 130 different wines, they're all one of us three winemakers' interpretation of a single vineyard site for a particular season. So if we worked with 10 sites in 2015, there might be, you know, um, 30 wines that we produce because Christopher um, Abe Schoener and Robert Foley would make three expressions in one place. Right, yeah. right. So... Uh, does that, I mean, so that means clearly that the distribution is very limited. It's pretty wines, small. Yeah. Right. We're pretty tiny. Where can, where can people find your wines? That here in, uh, in the city, um, a couple of, there's a retail, um, support in Brooklyn, I guess, uh, Brooklyn wine exchange is one place comes to mind. Um, they've, um, brought in a lot of the wines there's, um, in the city, uh, Union Square wines has been a long time, uh, supporter. Um, there are quite a few others. Those are two just uh, come to my mind right now. Sure, um, we've been real uh, flattered that you know some restaurants have taken interest in uh, 
um, in our wines. Um, I can name a few. Um, Milos, uh, Blue Hill. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of too many at, uh, at once here. That's okay. Grateful for the representation. <laughs> yeah. Tiny, though. Yeah. yeah. Um, so do you find in, in your own life, um, it sounds like the physical needs of you as a fisherman are in a window of time in the summer when there are not a lot of physical needs of a winemaker. Yes. Right? So you manage to have this sort of dual dual life almost of the winemaking. You know, I mean, I, I imagine in June and July is pretty much the grapes are just growing. Yes. And as a winemaker, there's not a lot to do to yeah. the wines at that point. Because a lot I'm of that farming, physical yeah. work is, yeah. is done because you're not farming. Yeah. Um, and then obviously the fishing season ends yep. and the fish are just doing their thing for yep. the rest of the year while you are busy harvesting yep, and crushing and, yep. and tending to the fermentation and then blending yep. and bottling and racking yep. and all those things. Yeah, I'm so grateful for the way that kind of feathers in there. And the, um, I'm, I'm the time as a wine maker that I begin visiting the vineyard a whole lot is right when I get back from fishing. So the tail end of July up through harvest, which on the North Fork and in the Finger Lakes isn't uh, usually until the third week of September. So I've got about seven seven weeks or so to be able to, you know, be walking these um, vineyards through to actual picking time. I do pick the fruit with the uh, farmers when I'm when I'm able, um, but uh, the heavy work of farming um, is uh, all done by these amazing uh, farmers when I'm fishing. So. Um, I have a, a, a question related to, so the Red Hook Winery was relatively um, damaged by Hurricane Sandy um, yes, being in its location, very essentially on top of the water in Red yes. Hook. Um, yeah. And I remember I was down there on that pier relatively shortly thereafter um, and saw, I mean, things were just completely jumbled. But I remember you mentioning to me at the time that there were a number of barrels that though they had been sort of knocked off of their holding places and storage had not actually come on yeah. or on yeah. the bums and yeah. fallen out, yeah. um, but that they had been sloshing around in this sort of dirty water. Yeah. And at the time it was unclear what was going to happen with those vintages. So I'm curious to know if any, I mean, what happened with yeah. those vintages? Oh, were they so grateful, able yeah. to be saved and bottled and, you know, or, yeah. or were they destroyed? Yeah. Oh, I'm so grateful. So in the midst of the, I think, um, I, I don't think I'm overstating it when I say that, we lost, uh, it was like 75% of the wines that we, you know, have been working on, um, the living wines, the barrels of wine, and the tanks that we had just uh, picked and crushed um, in October of 2012. Um, so we lost an incredible amount of wine, but the barrels that did stay bunged and that did stay closed, we got a clean bill of health from them. We were able to, you know, bottle those few survivors. So we... They they are kind of uh, you know totemic for us. We have a sure. black label group of hey these you're a superstorm sandy survivor they, right. these special uh, handful of barrels. So I'm so grateful. Cool. I'm 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 glad to hear that those that those made it out <laughs> as it were, and that the that the winery continued. I mean, Sandy was a huge catastrophe um, for many many businesses yeah. and people and homes. Definitely and not all just sorts us. Of yeah. yeah. Um, so it's it's great to hear that the that the winery soldiered on. Um, well, 
we've reached the end of the show today but thank you very much christopher for joining me um, i would encourage everyone listening to check out redsalmon.com to learn more about the iliamna fish company and and how you could uh in fact have and enjoy some of that fish yourself oh, we'd love um, that. and check out redhookwinery.com for yes, more please. information about the wines uh that christopher makes down there in red hook on the waterfront thanks for listening today to feast your ears big thank you to Kristen baylor my producer here at feast your ears and a heartfelt thanks to Liz Smith um, who has been the engineer for this show since the first episode and this will be the last episode she's engineering she's moving on to do some other exciting projects so thank you very much Liz and uh, tune in next week listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.